2 Corinthians 12. It is our continuing study through these two letters, God's plan for a healthy church, study through these two. Particularly now, 2 Corinthians 12, we started in verse 11 all the way to the end of chapter 13, marks of ministry, Paul's example. It's my prayer, of course, always for you that you are in the Word this week, every day. Um, we provide a lot of resources so you can learn how to do that. There are some bifolds, trifolds in the back that can take you through the Word of God in a year. You can certainly go on version and set up an account, and they have a lot of opportunities to read through the Bible in a year. Whatever it takes to get that to happen for you, it's my encouragement to you to do that. If you've gone this whole week and you've barely read your Bible, haven't read it all, you're starving this morning spiritually, you don't even realize that. If you did that with regular physical food, you would not be healthy. And it works the same with the spiritual realm. I encourage you to be in the Word each day so you can hold that holy standard up before you, that you can see what it says and do what it says. The Lord has one will. He reveals it to you in the Word. It's our desire that you have the joy of knowing what that is. As we do ministry over the years, it seems that the impression of ministry is that it's a very complex thing to lead the church. In fact, you can see that in a number of, of resources that are aimed at the church. I just received one this week uh, from a group called Subsplash, and, and that's actually, that was their byline. It's a very complex thing to lead a church, so let us help you do these kinds of things. And I think it's a common idea that it's very complex to pastor a church, a very complex thing to be a spiritual leader, a very complex thing to lead a ministry, to function inside the church, a very complex thing to be a missionary because there are so many different options and so many different preferences, so many different approaches. In actuality, though, I think that, um, from a, at least from a pastoral perspective, uh, from the standpoint, of course, from spiritual leadership, from the standpoint of leading a ministry functioning in the church, ministry is not that complex. It's very simple, actually, because the direction is laid out for us in the Scriptures. And certainly methods come and methods go and cultures change and preferences of people come and go and, and the mood of the people shifts and changes in every climate, but the principles of godliness and virtue that affect ministry very powerfully never change. And the catalyst for power and effectiveness in ministry is very simple because it's a matter of having a right heart before God and being passionate about the right things. Now, those are very specific, certainly. We don't get to make those up and figure out what we should be passionate about and what things are uh, constitute a right heart. The Lord lays those out for us, but they're very simply laid out. And that's Paul. As you think about that whole thing, we have been learning from him. And here it has not been by explicit instruction, as we see in the pastoral epistles, but by model and example as he opens his heart uh, to the church at Corinth. Paul gave them an example of persevering from verse 12. He gave them an example of selflessness from verse 13. He gave them an example of devotion from verses 14 and 15. He gave them an example of humble faithfulness in verse 8, uh, 16. Uh, Paul gave them the example of consistent integrity from verses 17 and 18. And even though false teachers had come to the church that he loved so much and they had assaulted his character and tried to destroy him, and, and sad to say uh, that some in the church had bought into the gossip and participated in the criticism of Paul and believed some of the gossip and lies, and even though he had to spend some time reaffirming his reliability and, and his legitimacy as a true apostle uh, because, of course, he wants them to see a true apostle and what that's like over and up against the false teachers. We found in verse 19 that everything he did, his, it does, his whole single focus, his presence there, his writing, his preaching was all to bring people to maturity, to build up the church. 
He wasn't defending himself, if you may uh, think about that. He wasn't defending himself as if their final verdict meant anything to him. He used the time to build them to maturity in whatever process he had to take to make that happen. And we looked at all of that and, and spent some time last time on a very important reality of the believer as being in Christ. Died to sin, you're not two natures, you're in Christ. Paul says, I come to you, I spoke in Christ. And we looked at what that, what that meant. And I've given you the background to our study today. If you missed any of that, um, of course you can, and if you'd like to catch up, it's all available to you. And I say this from time to time just because our men work so hard to make sure that this happens. But you can go on to Spotify, the Berean Journey podcast, or YouTube at Together in the Word, and you can catch up all these studies if you miss any. I'd like, if you would, let's read our, our, uh, our passage together that's under our consideration. We're going to pick up in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 20. We'll go through the end of the chapter. So just two verses, but packed full. Look at verse 20. For I am afraid, Paul says, that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish, that perhaps there will be strife and jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances, Verse 21, I am afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you, and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. Stop right there. And just for the next few minutes, I want to set the stage for, as we introduce this, this next section. There are, there are a few things that are worse experiences in the church than being present at an unruly business meeting. People joke about it, of course, but the experience of Christians losing their temper, speaking ill-considered remarks, being disagreeable and hurling hostility at other people and ruining their testimony can be very detrimental to the church. And churches can get into that habit and, and foolishly consider that normal behavior. And although Paul isn't coming to the church at Corinth for a business meeting, we can certainly see and remember all the way through this long letter that there are allusions galore to the fickleness and instability of many there at Corinth. And even though Paul has been on site twice, he, and even though Paul uh, has sent others to the church, and he's written three other times, it's unlikely, as our passage kind of indicates, that the weaknesses and the contentiousness of the church have been completely fixed. So just like the elders who lead a church should not allow the church to be subject to those who would disrupt the fellowship, by being contentious at a business meeting. So he has to go to the main transgressors and have a talk with them, and that's our passage. That's really what's going on. The precursor to his visit, he's talking to the people who cause the dis uh, are causing the problems. And so prior to the meeting, Paul is writing this to them. And if, you've, if you led such a church, you know that the task of taking on the divisive and contentious is no job to relish. That's a job that brings lack of sleep and hardship to any leader of a church. And you can certainly, if you never had to do it, you can imagine having to go to a contentious, backbiting, carnal person and bring that under control. Don't expect to have a spiritual answer from a non-spiritual person. But then you have an inkling, I think, of the sorrow and the anxiety tied up in Paul's statements here at the end of chapter 12. But this is the point that Paul finds himself. He's about to travel to Corinth in order to confer with the church. It's going to be the third time he's been there. He has some important things to talk about. Certainly the collection of the church for the church in Jerusalem is not the least of those things. And the church has suffered a lot of damage at the hands of false teachers and their followers. And so he also might have to meet them face to face. And so he's trying to 
preempt that meeting, and, and a sorrowful meeting certainly it would be, by talking to them here. And it's understandable that Paul's fearful about his visit. I'd like you to look in verse 20, if you would. Paul says, For I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish, and may be found by you to be not what you wish. And I think the first indication that this is going to be a difficult time for him is we normally see we. We are afraid. We will come. We are proud of you. We rejoice in your successes. But here he says, I. First person singular. And, and I think that's, that's an understanding that we know that he's probably going to be on his own with no support. He's going to be there. If he, has to, if he has to address them, it's going to be difficult. And he's aware that if the church continues its previous habits, that the breakdown may be beyond repair. Given that there's this one-sided antagonism between them and him, you remember in, chapter, in verse 14 he says, um, if I love you more, will you continue to love me less? And what does he say? Be that as it, however it is, be that as it may, I'll continue to respond to you as I should, no matter what you show me back. And so there's this one-sided love, and he wouldn't change his affection for them. So it certainly is possible that he's going to find them not as he would want, and that they, for their part, are going to find him not to be to their taste either. And just in general, troublemakers are usually very capable of showing a righteous indignation with respect to leaders they don't like. It all seems spiritual, of course, uh, when they sow discord because they've been around a long time, of course. And it seems that way, but, and this is what might happen when Paul arrives. There's going to be some spiritual talk to him, righteous indignation, if that can be said of those who are in these types of sins he's listed. And all the little letters and the tasty gossip and, and that are still floating around along with the pseudo-spiritual indignation that he's going to hear could make for a first century equivalent of dreading a modern business meeting. An unpleasant visit like that occurred during his second visit, do you remember, in, in chapter 2, verse 1, and Paul determined, if you read that, that if it were up to him, he'd never have to do that again, never go and have to be sorrowful with them. So his tactic then is to go to the troublemakers before the meeting, and, and without naming names, because he doesn't want to embarrass anyone, and he just pleads with them to set their house in order. And so he writes, for I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, so this is the pre-meeting talk, I may find you to be not what I wish and be found by you not to be what you wish. Mark this. Here's the point of plea. He says, he doesn't name any names. He just says, listen, this is what I'm afraid I'm going to find. Perhaps there'll be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. And that sounds a lot like a list he gave to the church at Galatia. I'd like you to see this just for some perspective. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, he says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are, what are they, Paul? Immorality, impurity, sensuality. We're going to see those words in just a minute in our passage. Those are deeds of the flesh. Keep on going. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions. Seems like we read that one just a minute ago. Verse 21, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like this, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What is he saying? If you slip into sin one time, if you have an angry retort to somebody one time, you won't see the kingdom? No. What's the habit of the life? Is the habit of the life drunkenness, carousing, disputes, dissensions, factions, jealousy, outbursts of anger, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, immorality, impurity, sensuality? I've warned you already, Paul says, 
Those who practice those things won't inherit the kingdom of God. So if that's a common practice for you, be forewarned, you're not in the kingdom. That's the idea. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things there is no law. So that's in contradistinction to the fruit that he has seen in the Galatian church and has forewarned them in advance that this is the pattern of your life, this is the fruit that leads to being cast away. Now those who belong to Christ, Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So it's a past act, right? Remember Romans chapter 6 we looked at last time. So the old man was crucified, there's not two natures at battle. The old man died, the new man rose. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. So, again, so you've got it in, in uh, 1 Corinthians, you've got it in 2 Corinthians, you've got it in Galatians. We're going to see it in a few other places. This is a common problem in the church, obviously. And so Paul's going to deal with it. And also, like we saw last week, there are some positional truths concerning salvation and some volitional responses. So this is a positional truth. You've crucified the flesh. Uh, your volitional response is that you don't do these kinds of things. And the fruit makes the position clear. So as you bear fruit of the Spirit, you make your position known that you are in Christ because you don't bear fruit of the Spirit without being in Christ. So when he arrives at Corinth, he knows that there might be some way in which it'll be obvious to him that their conduct leaves something to be desired. And that's, that's, that would be funny if it wasn't so sad. Obviously, they make their presence known. And, and that's horrifying if you think about that, just like an unruly business meeting. When the unruly business meeting gets going, it's already gone too far, the church has ruined its testimony. Of course, you've probably seen this, as I have, over and over again. You have guests with you, and then you have a business meeting, and you have contentious people stand up and talk, and is that a good testimony for your church? What does that tell the guest? You're not walking in the Spirit, and they're out the door. And so, it's a horrifying thought. Paul says, I'm afraid, and we'll look at that in just a minute. And Paul wants to avoid all of that, and so he's going to make sure that it doesn't happen. And in that respect, he says, I may be found by you to not be what you wish. So he's going to make sure that it doesn't happen. In other words, they're not going to like what he has to say and what he has to do. So uh, Paul easily predicts symptoms of spiritual immaturity or even being in the unredeemed state, like we saw in Galatians. And these kinds of symptoms of any kind are very bad for the church to manifest. And the first one he mentions is strife. We're going to work our way through this. It's a Greek noun, eris. It's, it's translated many times, contention. It has to do with verbal wrangling. It's the person who always has to argue about something, always has to bring up some other point, always has to make sure that everybody understands what they want to say. Typically, it involves saying bad things about another or never having a good word to say. That typically goes along. Arguing goes around, along with it. The next one is, is jealousy, zelos. That's a envious rivalry. I think we understand that, but it, but it is... Uh, in the church. The, it's actually, the word is for boiling water with heat. It's to boil over. Particularly strong feelings of resentment or jealousy against someone. And then this next one is, is angry tempers. That's the Greek noun thumos. It comes from the word thuo, which is to kill. And so the idea is that you've got a temper that, that's uh, indicative of the same type of temper that someone has when they want to murder someone. It goes along with passionate outburst. Disputes, the Greek noun erethia, that's where the New Testament gets the understanding of selfish ambition. We see it um, 
how it's translated in Romans chapter 2, verse 6, if you, if you listen to that. It, it's, it says, as it's, this particular section of, of Romans is talking about as the Lord examines the deeds of individuals, they indicate, again, in Scripture, they indicate who they belong to. Uh, God will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, eternal life. Does that mean that if you do those things, you inherit eternal life? No. Salvation is by grace through faith. It just means that in general, if you're looking for the glory of God and honor, and, and you're looking forward to the time when you get to be with the Lord, uh, that's indicative of the fact that you have inherited what? Eternal life. That's the context. But those who are, here's our word, selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. This is the person who, who uh, always wants their own way, who always thinks they know what they're talking about. And if that's the pattern of life, then that is wrath and indignation. That's the final end, because the pattern is there. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So just in general, you know, we see those words, and they're not in good company. Our, our next word describing what Paul may find is um, slanders, kataalia, it's the word for backbiting, evil speaking, saying things that are not nice about someone, usually finds its fit companion with the next one on the list, and that is gossip. Gossip is um, phytherismos, this is an interesting word, fifth is to whisper, and so the idea of gossip is whispered information. Its ancient application is a snake charmer. It's interesting that they use that because gossip is so um, inviting. If somebody has a soft word to say about someone else, it is um, very, very inviting. And so the difference between the first one, the one before, the slander, kata'alia, and, and pitharismos is that um, it's the volume. So the first one, the slander, is out loud, slander. Uh, doesn't really care who hears, and the other one is whispered. Both are considered marks of the unredeemed. The unredeemed do this, and because they continue to do this, they find themselves judged. So very interesting uh, that Paul says, listen, it may be some way I'm going to find out that this is still going on in the church. Both are considered marks of the unredeemed. They're both injurious to someone. Paul's also concerned that there will be arrogance, phosiosis, that has to do with swelling or puffing up. The idea is puffing up in relation to your own perceived ideas or your opinions, not connected to reality, obviously. So an understanding of um, those kinds of things that you think you know so well. Paul says that's going to be there. And then disturbances, it's the word for instability or insurrection, it has to do with standing on an unstable platform. In James chapter 3, verse 16, it uses it this way, it ties it to our other words. It says, um, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, so when those are visible, there is, our word, disorder, instability. So selfish ambition and jealousy create an unstable platform, and then mark this, every, what, evil thing. So disturbances create every evil thing. And instability, what you say creates instability and every evil thing. And beloved, every one of these words finds its home among the unredeemed. Every one. And they're also listed with those who would call themselves believers, but we would be classified as carnal. In fact, 
in the first letter we studied in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. Really, why is that, Paul? I mean, they imagined themselves to be so mature. They imagined themselves to have arrived. They were kings and they ruled, remember? And, and Paul says, listen, I couldn't even give you substantive teaching. I gave you milk not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. Then, indeed, he says, even now you're not yet able, for you are still fleshly since there is, here it is, jealousy and strife among you. Are you not fleshly and are you not walking as mere men? So when those are there, what's the indication? They're fleshly, perhaps still in the flesh, which would mean unredeemed. That's certainly Galatians' input. But certainly carnal. And, and there are some other illustrations, I think, that will put these issues in their proper perspective. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, Paul says to the church in Ephesus, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You received the Holy Spirit and you were sealed by the Holy Spirit on the day that you came to faith. So how would you do that? Well, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. So Paul says, if you don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit, put away from you bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, but you put that away from you with all malice. That's pretty clear, isn't it? You're grieving the Holy Spirit if it's part of your life. That's what Paul says to the church. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, again, much the same thing. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality. Why would we have to render that to be the case? Well, we are dead, right? The flesh is dead. So render that to be true in your mind. Reckon it. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. They participate in those things, and the wrath of God is directed to them because they do it. The unredeemed people are awaiting the wrath of God. They don't think they are because they're in a pretty happy situation. They think their life's pretty good, and uh, nothing's really wrong. And people who talk about being redeemed, they don't think they need to be saved from anything. And so they're in a good position. But Paul makes it pretty clear. He says, listen... The wrath of God is going to come upon the sons of disobedience. They do these kinds of things and other things, impurity, passion, evil desire. We're going to see some of those words in a minute. And mark this, in them you also once walked when you were living in them. So before you were redeemed, you used to do the same thing. But now you also put them all aside. And then here's our words again, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. God's wrath against the unredeemed is partly because they do these things. You're redeemed, don't do them. So not very good company. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, putting aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the Word. See, those are opposites. When you long for the Word, you don't do those things. See, If you're not longing for the Word, you're going to find yourself in those things. And that's generally true, I think, across the board. For believers, they don't long for the Word. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing the things. If they long for the Word, they wouldn't be doing the things that he lists here. That by it, you may grow in respect to salvation. That's sanctification. You begin to learn the things that you're not supposed to do, and you stop doing them. And so this is what Paul's concerned about. He says, for I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish. So these types of things then plagued the church from the start, and they plagued the church still. And people participated in them without a second thought. It's almost second nature to many in the church to participate in gossip and slander and all those kinds of things and um, arrogance and jealousy and disputes and always having another word to say and an overinflated opinion of what your perspective is. Those plague the church still and people participate in them without thinking about it. But look at the company that those vices keep. 
And they do incalculable damage to churches around the world every single day. And these things must not be. See, that's clear, isn't it? And Paul provides a checklist. You know, if the cap fits, take it off. He's not naming anybody's names, just saying, listen, if you're participating in this, this is not what should be happening. Or Paul says, and I may be found by you to be not what you wish. That's the uncomfortable job of every minister. But another example we see modeled by the Apostle Paul. What is it? A faithful minister has to address the hard things. That's not too much fun. I've known a number of ministers in, in my time in the ministry who would not address these kinds of things in the church. I mean, they were obviously there, and when they didn't address them, it always resulted in disaster. Obviously, in the disaster of, of what's going on in the church is creating disorder and disunity and disfellowship among its people, but I'm talking about a greater disaster with it just propagates it in the church. And so he has to say the hard things. Paul said to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 4.17, he said to them, he said, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, mark it, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. How do they walk? We just saw a bunch of lists, didn't we? And you also used to walk that way. Don't do that. So it's in the imperative. Don't walk like the Gentiles walk. In the futility of their mind, they imagine that what they're doing is okay, but it's futile. And when they, that when they exhibit these types of symptoms of these things in their life, they just show they're unredeemed. Don't walk like that, he says. Verse 23, that you, how do you stop gossiping? How do you stop backbiting? How do you stop arguing, sowing discord? Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. In other words, you begin to read what the Word of God says, and when it says don't do that, you stop doing it. That's a volitional response to your position, first of all, you're dead to sin and alive to righteousness. And secondly, to the practical part of your salvation, which is these things are not to be named. But they are named all over the place. And people do them constantly and don't even have a... There's no catch in their, in their conscience about it because they've done it for so long, see? So Paul's just pointing it out. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God and has been created in righteousness, holiness, and the truth. Therefore, laying aside, here it is. So if you're putting on the new self and you've put it on already, see, positional truth and then practical truth, which is make it look like you have. Lay aside all falsehood. That's lies. Speak truth to one another. For we are members of one another, and let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. Just in general, many of the things we just talked about would fall under that category, an unwholesome communication. Just when you're unclear, gossip and slander are unwholesome communications, and they proceed from your mouth. Okay? So it shouldn't happen, Paul says to the church. But only such a word is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so it'll give grace to those who hear. And of course, this, this goes together with what we've seen true about a faithful pastor or a faithful minister. They're consumed with the spiritual maturing of the people. That's what they're most concerned about. That's what they're called to see happen. They're called to do this. That's always what Paul desired. It was his passion and concern. And, and this is the concern of any faithful minister. And so sometimes you have to say the hard things. And, and, and the sanctification of people, the edification, the building up of the church, the purifying, the maturing, the nurturing, the growing of God's church more and more in the likeness of Christ. See, Growing in depth. Not necessarily numbers. Grow in depth. That's all that the Lord's concerned about. That you are growing and learning what's pleasing to the Lord. That's what he wants. Reaching the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And that's the whole point of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. Verse 11, he, he gave some apostles, some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Why? 
for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, here it is, to the building up of the body of Christ. Their whole job is about the building up of the body of Christ, whatever that takes to make that happen. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So there is a goal which is the representative of a reprint of Christ. What does Jesus want you to do? How do you know he wants you to do it? Begin to do it. Not the world's definition, do like Jesus does or whatever, be homeless, you know, don't have anything, whatever, see, you know, a peace. Jesus turned over some tables in his time. He drove people out with a whip, cursed a fig tree. He did lots of stuff that you perhaps wouldn't have liked too much. But the fact of the matter is, we're supposed to grow up into this fullness of Christ, speaking, here it is, here's what has to happen, speaking the truth in love. The truth has to be clear. We're to grow up in all aspects into him who's the head, even Christ. Faithful ministers have to do this constantly. Now, because of that, there are certain tasks that the faithful minister must be committed to which contribute directly to that sanctification process, and one of them is this one. Faithful minister has to address hard things. And that's what Paul's doing right now. And so we can continue to be able to track those tasks. And just in case you're unsure about a minister having to do the hard things and having to address difficult people, you know, Jesus had a lot to say about that in John chapter 10, verse 12. He says, he who is a hired hand, so that's not, a, um, that's not a compliment to those who lead the church. He who is a hired hand, not a shepherd, but who is, and who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming, speaking about the church, uh, talking about the oversight that an under-shepherd has to give, sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep, and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Listen, anybody who's participating in the types of things we just talked about, that would be considered wolf-type of activities because it consumes the church. He flees because he's a hired hand and not concerned about the sheep, so obviously you don't want to be like that. Even in the Old Testament, we see numerous places, and I've showed you many of those, a lot of condemnation from the Lord against those who are supposed to be spiritual leaders but weren't doing that job. They didn't speak for me. I didn't call them. And what they told you to do, don't do. See, They gave, the church, they gave the Israel false information, and he had a lot of condemnation against them. And here's the thing. As you minister, it's easy to get caught up with a lot of other things. You know, lives get complicated, and, and uh, things come up, and, and financial things come up, and health issues, and relationship things, and you know, sorrowful things. And certainly those who are under shepherds and operating like they should, they're going to pray and they're going to encourage and they're going to help. But it tends to be, I think, in general in the church nowadays that we get consumed by those sorts of physical concerns and we lose track of our purpose, which is the concern for the spiritual issues. And case in point, take the general prayer list in any prayer meeting. Grandma's bunions. David has cancer car broke down, I need a house. I mean, these are, these are important things, beloved. What about putting on the whole armor of God so you might be able to stand against the devil and done, having done all the stand? What about praying about that? What about praying about our husbands will love our wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it? What about wives coming up under husbands and, and loving them and, and being obedient and, and raising godly children? We pray that our children will turn out to be a reprint of Christ and a new generation of disciples. See? These are, important, these are important things, are they not? And these are, these are spiritual things. The other things are important, okay? I'm not saying that they're not. But, but the thing about it is we get, we get caught up in a whole bunch of physical things. And beloved, if I understand the New Testament correctly, some physical difficulty is a direct result of the Lord allowing you to go through it. So Paul could say, have all joy when you come into difficult times, for difficult times produce 
patience and let patience have its perfect work that you may be complete, lacking nothing. So in some respects, as a minister, you're praying that they'll learn what they need to learn in the middle of praying for their deliverance from the difficult time. You see? It's a spiritual emphasis. But some churches even try, and we've seen this over through the years, to structure the time of their pastors through their bylaws or their expectations that the pastor should be out visiting a certain amount of time a week and making sure those are sick get a visit and you're here and you're there. And you're doing all these physical things, taking care of physical things, see? And of course, they should be part of times of suffering. I'm not saying they're not in times of pain, in times of illness, in times of loss, in times of difficulty, in the matters of physical life. But in that, really, as these times are part of the spiritual dimension, because that's where the real concern lies. See? And I think you can see the difference. And the example, really, is from the Scripture, and certainly from Paul, that those that minister are to be occupied with a deep concern for the spiritual issues of the church in general, and people in specific. And if they're training, and here's the thing, if they're training believers for works of service, what's going to happen to all those other things? All those other physical needs and things that need to be, people who need a meal, and people who need a car, and people need, you know, if you're being trained for the works of service, those other things get taken care of by those who have matured. See? And, and just as a footnote, because I have to say this, because this dominates so much teaching nowadays, there is certainly no room in the life of a minister here or anywhere else to be concerned with wealth and prosperity of the flock and pursuing those as ends. See, how ridiculous is it that somebody would stand up here for 45 minutes and talk about your prosperity and your wealth? Those things are not important in relation to spiritual health. That's just so obvious, I think. And so we have this understanding of what it looks like to be a faithful under-shepherd, and it really runs countergrain to a lot of the requirements that churches have of their ministers nowadays. And we wonder why the church is anemic, it doesn't grow, and doesn't understand what they need to understand. Because the only way you're going to help them understand that is you're going to teach the Word of God exegetically and expositorily so that they will understand what the words mean and how that applies to them, and then if they're believers, that resonates with the Holy Spirit in their own heart, and they begin to conform to those images. See? And that's what you're given to as a minister. You have to say, and sometimes you have to say the hard things to people. So Paul marks these important things really very clearly as an example for us. Look at verse 21, if you would, as we move on. Paul says this, I am afraid, he said this the second time now, that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you, and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. So he starts again with, I am afraid. It's present middle or present passive indicative of the Greek phobeo. It's where we get our word phobia. Now, I think it would be a mistake to say that Paul has fear because the Lord says not to fear and that and fear uh, is part of what it means to be immature. So I, we can't understand. He's, we say it in English, I'm afraid, but phobeo is, is the word. And, and the idea is that um, I am caught up in concern, that's passive, or I'm living in fear, that's middle. So either way, it's okay. Um, in, the, in the passive, it's acting on him, this consuming uh, dread and um, or I'm living in fear, he's participating in it with the middle. So either way, this is the second time he's used the phrase, there's a dread in Paul's statement. I think we can see that very easily. It brings a whole, really a, a, a darker look to the verses when he says it twice. And the idea is that he's not physically afraid. He is dreading the situation because of his deep concern for the church. And, and that is number nine that we see. It's so important as we think about 
the very heart of Paul and a faithful minister who is always doing the things that he's supposed to do. Paul's example is that he's deeply invested in the spiritual health of the church, so much though that it encroaches on his own feelings. What he thinks about even when he's not with the church, things that encrode, uh, intrude into his thoughts and his mind, and if it's difficult things like you're dreading a business meeting or something, that encroaches on your sleep and on your peace. I think that's the idea here. There is a dread that the church or some in it will choose sinfulness. That's the dread. If you're concerned for the sanctification of the church, which you must be, of course, because that's what you're called to do if you're a minister, if you've been given for the upbuilding of the saints and you're committed to that, then you'll always be in dread of a bad testimony. A church, beloved, a church given to carnality is your worst fear as a minister. Your worst fear is not, will they pay my paycheck every week because it's faith-based? Will I be able to live? That's not your worst fear. Your worst fear is not somebody's going to walk out or write a little letter about you about how bad you do and circulate that around. That's not your worst fear. Your worst fear is that you have preached to the church and instead of listening, they've chosen to be carnal. I think we can see that very clearly. Both, both I'm afraid, and then he gives a list. And he says, I'm afraid, and he gives a list. See? Let's move on. I'm afraid that when I come again, God may humiliate me before you so here's the thing. Is Paul afraid of criticism? No. Is he afraid of cutdowns and gossip and backbiting and little letters circulated around about his shortcomings? No. Does that hurt him? Well, you, you can't be human and those things don't sting. But that's not what he's afraid of. And then he says, uh, may humiliate me, that's in the aorist active subjunctive, uh, tapanuo, literally to make low, they're going to make me low. And the subjunctive, of course, is the voice of condition, the whole thing is conditional. Their continued criticism, that's not going to cast him down. The false apostles continuing to say he's not very impressive and his speech is contemptible and he doesn't look very nice and all that, that's not going to be the condition whereby he'll be brought low. And not just that, he says, I may mourn. So Paul may grieve and weep, again, in the subjunctive. So here's the question. What are the conditions that will bring him down in front of them and what are the conditions that will bring him to weeping and mourning? Look at it over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they practiced. Because he's worried about they're, they're going to make fun of him? No. They'll say some mean thing about him? No. I mean, he doesn't want that to happen, obviously, and it grieves him that he, it's a one-sided relationship. That's not the thing that's going to bring him down. That's not the conditions by which he'll be made low. If I come, Paul says, and you've continued in your sin unrepentant. I won't be humiliated and sorrowful because you make fun of me or talk behind my back. I'll be humbled and sorrowful because you are still in sin. So, Margaret, you can see how invested he is with all of that, can't you? And again, you can see how invested he is to, to do the right things and say the right things. And that's number 10, as we see the very heart of Paul, faithful minister, Teaching, market, teaching intentionally to have as one of the expected results of his teaching. This is very important as you think about it as your teacher. One of the expected results of his teaching, admonishing, correcting, and instructing is what? The whole thing is geared to repentance, is it not? If you're not teaching that way, you're missing the point of the majority of the passages in Scripture. They're given for our understanding and our upbuilding. 
which is going to include admonishing and correcting. And that word repented is one we're familiar with. That's a neo compound verb. To perceive afterward. Meta is, is after, implies change, and, and uh, noeo is, is uh, to perceive in the mind. So afterwards to perceive. So to receive a message and then perceive its true message. That's the understanding. And, and of course, I think um, it certainly has a change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. In the English, we, we really focus a lot on, on the component of, re, of repentance, the sorrow and the contrition that you feel. So certainly there's some of the shame and all of that that a person experiences because of sin. The emphasis, though, on metaneo and metanoia seem to be more specifically a total change in both thought and behavior after the message has come with respect to how someone should both think and act. Change that should be in place, an understanding and a movement in that direction. That's, that's I think, the, the idea. Paul said, I'm going to come and I'm going to be grieving and I'm going to be made low because with all the writing and all the visiting and everything that I did and all of that, I may come and find that you are still unrepentant. And that's the focal point, really, of a faithful pastor to teach that way. Spurgeon is noted for saying, Quote, faith and repentance are born together, live together, and thrive together. I think that's exactly right, right? You, you, you come to faith by repentance, don't you? And then you live in that so that you keep a short sinless. You are secure. You died with Christ. You rose with Christ. You're secure in Him. He's able to save you forever. And then from a practical standpoint, you keep a short sinless. And when you're in the Word, it reveals to you what you should be doing, and then you bring that before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm sorry, I've not been doing this. Or I've been actively involved in some of these things we just got through saying, and that's not what I should be doing, and I'm sorry, and I'm wrong about that, and I want you to change. Because what you don't want to do is let things go and go, and then become camouflaged in your own life, and it's part of your very nature. And you're doing these types of things that he says relate you very badly to those who are unredeemed. So as you read the Word of God, you recognize it has it has as part of its purpose to pick out those kinds of things and dig them out. And then you want to repent and turn from them. So it's all, it's all part of living uh, the life of faith is a constant desire to renew that relationship with Christ by keeping a short sinless. It's the reason why we come to the table, is it not? We want communion with the Lord. And part of the very instruction that Paul gives to the church is that examine yourself. That's the very first thing he says to do. So the condition Paul dreads by which he's going to be brought low are all wrapped up in this issue, see? This is the main thing. Now, we're almost out of time, so let's close out this chapter and wrap up our teaching time today. Look at verse 21 again, if you would. He says, I am afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you, and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. Now, we know from our study of 1 Corinthians that, that an atmosphere conducive to immorality was present in Corinth. In fact, to Corinthianize in the ancient times means to be an open sexual sin. So we recognize the city is connected to that. It had a huge temple, and uh, a lot of bad things went on there. And we've looked at Paul's instructions throughout the first letter that we studied, right? He, he, he talked about severing relationships with unashamed sinners, in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13, somebody's in the church, they're in open sin. He says, you've rejoiced because you're so open-minded. You should have put him out a long time ago. It's bad for the church. It's bad for the understanding of the church, and it just promotes more sin in the church. I'm not even there. Boot him out. So he'll come in repentance. And we saw in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, his instruction to flee fornication. Every sin that you commit is outside the body, but fornication is a sin against your own body. Don't do it, he says. 
And so that tells us a little bit about the atmosphere in Corinth and the tendency and a lack of discernment in some in the church. So he writes this final letter. The apostle has this reason to suspect that this earlier exhortations uh, that he has given to the church about these things have not been taken to heart and that apart from the strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossips, arrogance, disturbances that's going on, Paul suspects and dreads that there will be some still involved in impurity, immorality, and sensuality. Same things, again, that we saw in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, and some of the other passages. Same types of sins in the same company. Now, these sins were dominant features of pagan social life in Corinth, certainly. It is how the unredeemed act. They continually are involved in this kind of thing, and they don't see any problem with it. In fact, um, they were a way of life in Corinth, just like they are today in our society. Immorality was rampant, then it is still. So let's look at the words so we can be clear what they mean. Impurity is our first word, akatharsia. Uh, you've heard of the word catharsis. It's where we, part of this word is where we get that. A catharsis is a word for cleansing. If you have a cathartic moment, you've, you've purified your, your understanding, you've clarified everything, you've made it clean. Um, ah is a negative particle, which changes the word to a negative. So akatharsia means unclean. And so it's just a general word for being unclean or impure, for sexually wicked living. All this has to do with, what if you can't classify it under any other place, if it's sexually wicked living, it's akathasia. He said there's some in the church who, who have this as part of their life and they haven't repented. The second one is immorality. And that's the Greek word pornea, from which we get our word pornography. Basically, it's very easy to define. It is the word for fornication. It just means any sexual activity outside marriage. That's fornication. Any. And so, it's more specific, of course, but it has to do with uh, pursuing a sexual relationship before you're married. And then there's this next word, sensuality, azeglia. It is the word that basically is used to describe unrestrained sexual sin that's blatant. And, of course, that would take in uh, homosexuality and all of that. A flagrant, indecent, blatant sin without restraint in the sexual realm. And uh, you know we, we see that a lot. You see, um, see that in our culture, of course, today. And of course, the word the word really relies on what is seen as indecent in the culture. And the culture changes, doesn't it? It gets worse and worse. So, what's seen as indecent 50 years ago is not seen as indecent now. But the word of God doesn't change. I think we see that very clearly in the LGBTQ or STUVWXYZ realm, right? It's just whatever we want to do, and that's not wrong. And I've witnessed to many, many, many people fall in that category. And typically, it is what I'm doing is not wrong and love is love. That's, that's the response I've had 20 times if I've had it once. And so it's, it's, a, it's a seared conscience which believes that whatever it is that I want to do is perfectly fine. Paul calls it out. Any of these kinds of blatant, obvious, sexual, publicly indecent, unrestrained sinfulness is part of the church right now, he says, and it's part of what the world does. And we can see it very clearly now. And just seems like we're in the wrong and we're the ones who are narrow-minded and all of that. But uh, the Bible's very, very clear about this. And so Paul says, so now you can catch it. I, I'm, I'm dreading that I'm going to come and find these things like these two groups in the church. I'm going to find sins that destroy the fellowship and the unity of the church like strife and jealousy and angry tempers and disputes and slanders and gossip and arrogance and disturbance. I'm going to find those things. I'm afraid. I'm dreading this business meeting, if you will, that I'm going to come and I'm going to find these things still active in the church. 
And I'm going to find sins that destroy the purity and power and testimony of the church, like impurity and immorality and sensuality. And you can see his dread, can't you? He spent all this time investing in them. He's two visits, a number of letters, and then he's saying, hey, um, that's not going to be good. And so my question to you is this. Does that bring you a sense of dread too? If, does it strike you like that when you see any of these two lists in the church? And we've been through it here. Hard, difficult things with people and we've had to deal with them, right? Is that, did that make you dread? Did that, bring, did that bring sorrow on you as if a death occurred? That's the idea. When you hear about any of them, and I'm talking about both lists, gossip, arrogance, disturbances, tempers, slanders, jealousy, strife, people arguing, does that bring dread on you when you see that in the church? When you hear about the other ones, sensuality, impurity, immorality, listen, if it does, if it does, you're developing the heart of a minister. If that encroaches on you when you're not even around, when you know that's going on, and I'm just so grateful that we have people here who, and that's what you pray for as a pastor, people who are circulating out and doing the ministry, who hears the kind of things that get said and say, whoa, stop. That doesn't concern me, and if it concerns you and someone else, go to that person and stop what you're doing right now. See, this is what has to happen in the church. We are so used to that first list being excused, and we think somehow you're spiritual or superior or somehow doing what you're supposed to do, that, you know, you're guarding the gate, if you will, uh, for you know, making sure everybody's toeing the line. Listen, Paul doesn't give any exception here. Both lists are important. Both lists should bring dread. Does it bring dread to you? See, Beloved, because I would say that if neither of those lists or parts of those lists don't bring dread to you, then you are pre- precisely the people that Paul was writing to in the first century. If those don't bring dread to you, then they're just common things for you. You fall into this, that first category of people that he's talking to, see? And you're in very bad company with that. For Paul, he dreads being brought low and mourning over these things because there can be no sense of victory or success if he comes and finds it. And to illustrate that, I know many of you know I, I love uh, World War II stuff and I read all the time about it. There's a, there's a story, I think, that goes really well with this. The British military retreat from Dunkirk, France, in the summer of 1940, when that was accomplished, it was a, it was a miracle thing that happened with, with the private boats that picked up over 300,000 British soldiers off the beaches in Dunkirk. And they looked at it as a public jubilation, or what was generally considered a national deliverance. And perhaps it was, and, and certainly we can see that, the way the Lord did the weather and everything else that protected the lives of the men. But um, Winston Churchill urged caution, and he said this, wars, he said, as he informed the House of Commons, are not won by evacuations. And, and he was correct. Wars are not won by getting people off a beach to keep them from being slaughtered. And Paul probably would have agreed, and, and here's how it connects. He knows that fellowship and purity and power and testimony are not accomplished by sackcloth and ashes, if you will. Coming and dreading and feeling badly and being humiliated is not going to solve the problem at the church. That's why he's coming. And he's having this little conversation by letter with the people who are in these types of things so that when he comes, he doesn't have to do the hard things because sackcloth and ashes won't accomplish it, see. 
His mourning and lowness and how the church has fallen will have to give way to what? Discipline. Discipline. And we're going to see that starting next time as we're together in this letter. And to close, sometimes people notice the different lists of sins, and that's what they are here, and they imagine that one list is not as terrible as the other one. Both Paul dreaded. Both of them would have brought him low. And people may think the, 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 the lists, the first one's less severe. Or, here's this what's worse, they may reveal that in their actions. So they participate in some of the first list, but perhaps none of the other second list. Could I propose to you that they are connected? More generally, is it not the case, beloved, can I appeal to you this way? That an absence of the fruit of self-control, whether it be in speech or attitude, is the same absence of the fruit of self-control with every other sin we speak about here? Is that not true? Of course it is. We have this hierarchy, I think, that we think, well, some of them are not as bad. You know, in Matthew chapter 15, verse 18, Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders of the day, and they were worried about washing hands and all that kind of stuff so they wouldn't be defiled. And, and Jesus really makes this clear, and I want you to listen to it, and I think it, it, um, it illustrates our point. We're going to close. The things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. It's not whether you washed your hands before you ate anything. It's what you said, because what you said came out of the core of who you are, now, I want you to listen to this, and this is very important because it lists all of them and it doesn't give them any preference. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, and certainly they just give way to all the gossip and the slander and everything that goes on. What's the next one? Murders, that's anger, that's actually the word for anger. Adulteries, so there's your sexual sins, fornication, thefts, catch this, false witnesses and slander, people who lie about others, and people talk badly about others. They're all coming from what? The heart. And what do they do? They all defile a person. You see? And so Paul's talking to the church, and he expects them to be different than the world. And that's why he said over and over to the, in the other epistles, you know, you used to be like this. Don't be like this anymore. This is what you used to look like. You've come, been, come out of the world, and the world's going to be condemned by these kinds of things. And so we just see it over and over, and yet we allow it in the church, and we allow it to be part of our daily life, and we miss the point that this is important, and this is how the church grows, and this is how the church is brought to maturity by excluding these kinds of things. And so this is the point Paul's bringing to them. Both lists do severe harm to the church, and neither list should be named in the church. That's the whole point of it, see, ever. And beloved, as a minister, faithful teaching which produces repentance is the key to making sure they're not there. I could bow with me in prayer. We're, we're out of time. We need to close. Father, we thank you today for a time in your word, even the hard things. Things hard to read, certainly things very hard to bring to the congregation. But they're just, they follow the other things we taught, and so we can't jump over them and ignore them. And they're important. And they get right up where we live and make it very uncomfortable. You know the hearts of our folks. You know the heart of this pastor. You know those who lead and those who follow. Pray that we'll be the kinds of people who understand the depth of the 
difficulty that these kinds of things bring to the flock and exclude them from our lives and help them not to be, Lord, we pray this emphatically, not to be hidden from our side and camouflaged in our own life. Some of us have lived our whole life participating in many of that first list and called ourselves a believer from the start. And some today live in the second list and call themselves believers. Neither is acceptable. All need to be excluded and repented of. And we pray that will be the case, Father, as you bring your word to bear in power upon all of our lives. And we thank you for it. We, we do want to be a church that's pure. We desire very much to walk in such a way that you can bless us and, and uh, we can be salt and light in our community. We can't do it if we walk in these kinds of things. It's so easy to get caught up. We're much like Corinth in our culture today. Many of the things which were excused and, and celebrated uh, there are celebrated and excused here. And so, Father, help us to be wise. It's not okay to change uh, what you say not to do just because it doesn't line up with what the culture says now. That's our prayer today. Very simple, Father. Church that conforms to your image like Paul desired very much this Corinthian church to be conformed and to come away from those things that cause so much trouble in the church and fellowship and so much trouble and difficulty in testimony. Like the bad business meeting. Once it gets going, it's disastrous. Let's not to be part of these things anymore starting today. For those out there who don't know Christ as your Savior, you never come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, prayed and repented of your sin, uh, your life may exhibit some of these kinds of things. Today can be the day you can be delivered from them, both from their guilt and their punishment, which is for sure coming. I said last week that you know, it is a desire that the Lord has that all come to the knowledge of salvation, but if you refuse, you're coming to judgment. And that for everything you've ever done, and the Lord will remember all of that, he's got a list. You don't even live up to your own expectations, let alone a holy God. But Jesus did, and he took your place on the cross and paid for your sin, and you can receive that if you come to him in repentance and forgiveness. He will grant it to you. Eternal life and the release from all your debt nailed to the cross instead of to you. We pray that today, and that's your desire. Let us know before you go. That's what happened today. The rest of us, if we know Christ, help us walk accordingly, not like we used to walk. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen.